Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ that allows us to be able to enter into your presence and have relationship with you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work among us now as we listen and hear your word proclaim. We pray, Lord, that that word would do such a work inside of us that it would cause us to see the beauty and the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see him in a breathtaking manner that would cause our hearts to, to rise up and to worship him and to seek you alone. We pray that it would transform our lives. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the proclaimed word. And we also pray for our sister churches around the area that are doing the same right now. We remember Alex Shipman at the Village Church. We, we also lift up Andrew Record at Haven Baptist. We thank you, Lord, that our brother Darren Tolle is here from Providence Presbyterian to worship with us this morning as he is taking a, a short break on vacation. And so, Lord, we just pray for these men that they would feel a sense of your spirit and know, Lord, that they stand in the gap for you. And pray, Lord, that you would empower them, that you would strengthen them, and that you would bless those congregations. But, Lord, we ask that you do a work here now among us. We pray that we would walk away today having met the living, risen Lord Jesus. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. If you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. I don't often try to cover sweeping passages of Scripture. As an expositor, I like to dig into the minutia and dig out all of those riches out of a single verse. But this morning, I plan on covering most of Matthew chapter 27. In fact, I plan to do the first 54 verses that we read right up before we took the offering. I'm not doing this because I just want to finish Matthew's gospel before I leave for Southeast Asia. <laughs> We have come so far in this book, and it would be a disservice to do that with a hasting ending. But don't panic when I say that we're going to cover 54 verses and think, not today. I've got people coming over, or I've got some place to be right now. I still plan on having us out on time. I am covering this many verses because I would like us to see the beauty and the grandeur of what Matthew has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Too often, particularly when we cover the crucifixion of Jesus, we can get down into the weeds, so to speak, to cover historical details or minor points of theology, and we miss the big picture of what the inspired writer is trying to communicate. For example, I have heard sermons recounting the gruesome particulars of Roman torture and crucifixion in order to give the hearer an understanding of the suffering of Jesus. I've heard an entire sermon on Simon of Cyrene, one verse that tells us of a man who was commanded to carry the crossbeam of the Lord Jesus' cross. No doubt you too have probably heard multiple sermons coming from Matthew 27 alone. For example, the Presbyterian minister James Montgomery Boyce gave five messages on this chapter. John MacArthur gave six sermons from the same text, and he even wrote an entire book based upon chapters 26 and 27. Now, I'm not saying such studies are unhelpful or even wrong, but what Matthew has provided for us within these verses is nothing short of spectacular, and it has relevance to the end of his gospel. Far too often, that is overlooked. Perspective is important. 
I had friends who recently went to the Grand Canyon, and one of them posted online that as she approached the historical site, she was a little bit worried that she might be underwhelmed. Of course, she wasn't. The views were, were breathtaking. I recently read in a book of a group that hiked to the canyon, and when they got their first glance of it, someone broke out singing, O oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all thy works, worlds thy hands have made. And Edwin broke out into singing, How Great Thou Art. Now, imagine, if you will, someone leading you to the Grand Canyon blindfolded. And they guide you down into the deep part of the gorge, and they stand you facing the wall, nose to the rock canyon, where you can still at least see some of the geological strata. And then they take the blindfold off and pronounce, Ta-da! The Grand Canyon! Yeah, it's a portion of the Grand Canyon, but it doesn't really do justice to one of the seven wonders of the world. So in an attempt for us to gaze upon the Lord Jesus in a fresh way, to be stunned and awed by his work, I want to do a broad overview of this passage of Scripture. I want us to see how our author has woven together the events leading up to the crucifixion and to the Lord's subsequent death. It will reveal the glory and power of Almighty God. Matthew had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't think human inspiration could pull something like this off. Matthew has, has written his account in his way. There are many things that, that he admits that are found in the other Gospels, like Jesus standing before Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, found in, in John chapter 18, and most notably, Jesus being judged by Herod Antipas, and the thief at the cross who repents that's found in Luke. Matthew doesn't reveal these things because he was either unaware of them or he made some sort of mistake. He is telling his story in his way for a purpose. And the singular purpose is to magnify the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus. In this passage, we see Matthew's portrayal of three types of authority. You have the Jewish religious establishment, you have the Roman government, and you have the triune God. I'm going to repeat those again because, like I said, they're going to have relevance next week. You have the Jewish religious establishment, you have the Roman government, and you have the triune God. Now, one could do a sermon on each of them, but if we're to gaze out onto the canyon, so to speak, we need to see each of these in relationship to one another. We need to see how Matthew kind of goes back and forth between these first two authorities, ultimately revealing the authority of God. And if I do my job correctly, you're going to say, wow. What a mighty God we serve. Now, I know this is a bit like calling your shot in the batter's box, but, but when you have the crucifixion of the Christ to work with, this is slow-pitch softball here. The material enough is going to do the work for us. The first two verses here sets up the three authorities that we will be dealing with this morning. And within them, we have something that is near miraculous. We're told that the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled together to condemn Jesus to death. Remember, this was the Sanhedrin, the, the religious governing body of Jerusalem. It was made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees who hated one another and tried to block each other's agenda. And yet, somehow, they could all arrive to form a quick assembly and hastily decide to put Jesus to death. This would be the equivalent of Republicans and Democrats gathering for a quick meeting and unanimously coming to an agreement all within a single moment. 
Some might call that rare. Others of us might see that as miraculous. But that is not all. We are also told they bound the Lord Jesus here in order to take him to Pilate. Remember, the Romans allowed the Jews to more or less govern themselves since their religious laws were intermingled with the civil law. But the Romans withheld capital punishment from the Jews. Only the Roman government could execute a criminal. But now, these men are requesting a favor from Pilate so that they don't have to do the dirty work themselves. Now, I don't want to give a history lesson on Pilate, but he is a historical figure which we have much data. He became the prefect or governor of Judea in 26 AD. His patron, Sejanus, was anti-Semitic, and Pilate appears to have inherited his patron's racist tendencies. In an effort to impress his authority over the populace, Pilate made blunder after blunder that offended and riled up the Jews. His administration was so bad that he was recalled to Rome in 36 AD and subsequently banished. Tensions were high between the Sanhedrin and Pilate. And the last thing Pilate was interested in doing was doing the Jews any favors. Somehow, both the Jewish leaders and the Roman government needed to come to agreement if Jesus is to be eliminated. And we're going to see both of these authorities vying for dominance over the situation. The next scene is a bit of an interlude that reveals what happened to Judas, but it also gives us a glimpse into the type of people that made up the Sanhedrin. Judas sees that Jesus was going to be put to death. Most likely, the former disciple didn't think things would escalate that quickly. Judas now has second thoughts about this. It's important for us to point out the motivation for this. The word translated here in the ESV as changed his mind is the Greek word metamelomai, metamelomai, which means remorseful. Matthew chose this word specifically rather than you choosing to use the Greek word metanao, which means repentant. Judas was not repentant, just remorseful that he had taken part in a plot where an innocent man was going to be killed. And note how Judas declares Jesus to be innocent. And because he knows he is, he wants to give back the 30 pieces of silver. Also note how sympathetic and caring for his soul these shepherds of Israel were. Not they said to Judas, see to it yourself, which is telling him, Judas, you want these proceedings to stop, so then you go stop them. Go and confess your error. We are told that Judas threw the money into the temple and committed suicide. But these righteous religious leaders did not want to return the money to the temple treasury. Based upon Deuteronomy 23, verse 18, it was money obtained in an unrighteous manner. They couldn't have blood money corrupting their treasury. What a bunch of hypocrites. They were the ones that gave it to Judas in the first place. That money originated from their sinful, evil hearts to conspire against Jesus. Keep the money out, but it's okay for us to go in and out of the temple. Now, I'm going to get to the passage in Jeremiah in just a few moments, but, but keep in mind how Matthew is revealing the duplicity of the shepherds of Israel. The next scene is Pilate acting in his role as the chief authority of the Roman Empire. Remember, he is the one that gets to decide whether or not Jesus lives or dies. 
Missing from Matthew's gospel is the charge of treason. John 18 and Luke 23 provide us with that information. Now, when we look back at chapter 26, verse 65, the religious leaders condemn Jesus for blasphemy. But at this point, they tell Pilate he is being brought before him for an act of sedition, that Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews usurping Caesar's power. Though it's implied in the text, Matthew assumes his readers were already familiar that the charge of sedition was a primary reason for capital punishment. So our author launches right into Pilate's trial. Pilate asks if he is the king of the Jews. And Jesus answers, you have said so. Maybe better translated as, it is as you say. The religious leaders pipe in with their accusations. Obviously, none of what they were saying could be construed as Jesus trying to rebel against Caesar. But like Isaiah 53 prophesied, Jesus is silent before them. He does not answer their charges. Pilate is in a dilemma. He doesn't want to concede to these religious leaders, but he doesn't want to look bad in front of the people or his superiors. After all, he had made some blunders that had upset the Jewish citizens, and and what was it to those up the chain of command that Pilate executes some dude from Galilee claiming to be a king? What happens next was likely designed to thwart the religious leaders and to get Pilate off the hook. It was the custom of the Romans to free a prisoner during the, Roman, or during the Passover feast. Remember, the Passover celebrated the exodus of the Hebrews from the captivity of Egypt. The scheme to release a prisoner from Roman captivity while a concession in the minds of the Jews was likely a mockery to them. After all, the Hebrews were unlawfully enslaved by the Egyptians. They weren't criminals. But Pilate capitalizes on the opportunity. He had a notorious prisoner in his custody, a a man named Barabbas, whom Mark 15 describes as an insurrectionist and a murderer. He must have been a pretty bad man. And the irony here is sweet. The, The Jews accused Jesus of being an insurrectionist, and Pilate puts up a real rebel up against Jesus something the Sadducees especially would hate if this man was a zealot. So he gives the choice to the crowd. And Matthew states why. In verse 18, Pilate knew that they put Jesus forward out of envy. And in addition to that, his wife had supplied him with some supernatural information. She had had a bad dream over this, quote, righteous man. So Pilate thinks he has won his political game. Put the gentle and lowly Jesus up against the hardened murderer Barabbas and let the people vote. So we should note who is stirring up the populace to go against Jesus. Verse 20 tells us it's the religious establishment. Furthermore, when Pilate asks the people what they want to be done with Jesus, they shout, crucify him. Not someone to cater to others' opinions. Pilate probably asks this of the people thinking they would want leniency. What Matthew doesn't tell you that John does in John 19, verse 1, is before Pilate asked the crowd for their verdict, he had Jesus beaten and flogged in front of them, hoping that his appearance would elicit sympathy. But despite seeing this beautiful, gentle man marred beyond all semblance, the crowd still shouts, Crucify him! Crucify him! 
And here is where we see Pilate turn into a coward. He's supposed to be the judge, the representative of Rome that decides life or death for citizens. But because he feared a riot, he caved and executed Jesus. Instead of exerting his authority in such a moment, he tried to blame shift and place it upon the people. Three times in this chapter, we are told Jesus is innocent. Judas says so in verse 4. Pilate's wife says so in verse 19. And Pilate declares him innocent before the population of Jerusalem in verse 24. And the religious leaders are working hard to see that despite being innocent, Jesus is going to die. This is not something that they are indifferent toward. They are working hard to make this happen. Oh, the restraint of the Son of God. The injustice of it is staggering, isn't it? If Pilate's going to carry out this execution, he will do so with the full weight of the Roman legal system. The first thing Pilate does is have Jesus publicly scourged. He would have been tied to a post, and a soldier would take a nine-corded whip that had been dipped in tar and then dipped in broken pottery shards. So it would stick onto the whip. And he would lash the prisoner until the cords wrapped around his torso or his arms or his legs, and then he would pull the whip back until those jagged pieces of pottery would rip off the flesh of his victim. The person doing this would be an expert, knowing how to elicit the most pain, yet keeping the subject alive and conscience to experience every bit of it. Then the Roman soldiers take Jesus here into the courtyard of the Praetorium. They perform a well-known ritual of humiliation to the one who would seek to usurp Roman power. They make a mockery of this so-called king who would set himself up against Rome. The purpose is to, to humiliate and denigrate the prisoner. It would teach a lesson to any others who sought to incite a riot against the empire. Last week, we saw how the religious establishment mocked Jesus as the Christ in Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68. Here, the soldiers will mock him as king. They strip him of his clothing. They place a scarlet, scarlet robe upon him. This would have been the same robe that's given to civilian officials to display their high status. All as a form of mockery. And to make matters worse, they make a crown of thorns and they place it upon his head. This would have been placed down upon his brow and then they would have taken a stick and beaten the head of Jesus until those thorns impaled his flesh in order to make that crown fit. They put a flimsy reed in his hand as though it were a scepter. And they knelt before this beaten form saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You can almost hear the laughter in their voices, right? I will say it again. Oh, the restraint of the Son of God. The dishonor continued with the soldiers beating him with the makeshift scepter and spitting in his face. And when they were finished, they led him out of the quarters to be a spectacle of public humiliation as they marched him outside of the city to Golgotha. 
Apparently, Jesus was so weak at this point, he could not carry the cross beam of his cross required for his execution. A man named Simon was chosen to do this, whom we're going to speak about more next week, Lord willing. They offered Jesus wine mixed with gall before they hung him on the cross. It was a bitter trick to torment him even further. John is the only gospel that tells us that Jesus was nailed to the cross rather than tied to it. Crucifixion was particularly brutal as the captive was, was tied to the cross without any support whatsoever. And eventually his, his body would collapse over, eventually cutting off oxygen once the prisoner's strength gave out, slowly suffocating him. It was an agonizing way to die. And the fact that Jesus was nailed to the cross meant that pain would have been even more excruciating each time he tried to push himself up for a breath. But the humiliation was not complete yet. Above him was Pilate's last dig at the religious leaders. When someone was executed by the Romans, the authorities placed a sign on the cross to announce to the public the person's crime. It was meant to be a deterrent. This will happen to you if you break the law. Pilate could have written on it, rebel, traitor, treason, sedition, but he didn't. Pilate placed a placard that said, King of the Jews. And we see the mistreatment continues in reviling Jesus here. There were common citizens, the chief priests and elders, even the two thieves mock Jesus as he dies upon the cross taunting the Son of God as his breathing becomes labored. The sheer cruelty is astounding. But as bad as all that suffering was, the greatest blow is about to occur next. We are told at about noontime that darkness filled the land, and Jesus shouted to the sky, Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, Jesus is starting to experience his purpose for the cross. God the Father was allowing his son to suffer the consequences of our sin. In his human nature, Jesus would feel the removal of his Father's presence. He is starting to feel the wrath of God for sins that he did not commit. Some of the bystanders mistakenly thought that he was calling out to Elijah. Matthew writes in verse 50 that with a loud voice, Jesus cried out and he gave up his spirit. I can scarce get the words out. Jesus had just begun to feel this wrath, and within seconds, he was dead. The eternal Son of God, the one who committed no sin, felt the weight of all the transgressions of the elect, past, present, and future. He felt it all at once, and it crushed him in seconds. That is how significant the sin debt was. It was the worst day in all of human history. 
And yet, it was also the greatest day as well. God responds to the sacrifice of the Son. The temple curtain separating the holy of holies, the place of the presence of God, this this huge curtain that only one high priest could pass into once a year was torn from top down. No more does humanity enter into the presence of God with the blood of sheep and bulls. Now one can enter by faith in the blood of the Son of God for all time. Hallelujah, the sacrifice was acceptable, and we, like our ancestors Adam and Eve, can have full fellowship with Almighty God. Verse 52 and 53 record another curious detail. Now, you need to read it carefully. Matthew does a little foreshadowing here. This happens after the resurrection. The citizens of Jerusalem saw fellow Jews also raised from the dead who entered the city. We don't know how long they remained alive, But Matthew is giving us the end result of Jesus' sacrifice. Just as these people came alive, we too will come alive and be raised from the dead. Once again, we know the sacrifice was acceptable. Death has been conquered. This is just a foretaste of what we all will experience in the final resurrection. And not only that, in the darkness of verse 45, the earth begins to quake and a Roman centurion, one of the very men who would have participated in the mockery of Jesus back in verses 27 through 31, look at what he confesses here. He and a few other of his companions, they say, truly, this was the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the last thing that should have happened. A Roman soldier watches the humiliation of a Jewish man that went to his death silently like a lamb that was led to slaughter, and yet he confesses that this is the Son of God. Somehow the noble death of Jesus had an effect. The Christ is revealed in his death. That must have been Holy Spirit initiated. The sacrifice had been paid, and even the Gentiles are starting to recognize who Jesus is. So now that we have this this broad overview of Matthew's narrative, you have the religious leaders trying to suppress Jesus, and you have the Roman authorities trying to suppress Judaism, and there's one common denominator here to it all. It is Jesus. These other men think that their plans are being carried out, but they don't see how they are all under the sovereign control of an almighty God. They are all acting according to their sin natures, but the Lord God is using it to bring about his purposes. And if we were witnesses on that day, it might seem like Satan was winning, but the way Matthew is recording this story is showing us that this is all according to the prearranged plan of the Father. Remember, Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 20 that this is what he was going to do to, in Jerusalem. Matthew 20, verses 18 through 19. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And just as confirmation that God is in control of it all, and this is not just some random act of violence or someone taking a story to fit their own purposes, Matthew laces fulfilled prophecy throughout this account. 
If we go back here to verses 7 through 10, we see Matthew makes a reference to Jeremiah. And then he quotes Zechariah 11.13. Now, this is not a mistake by Matthew. He didn't get the source wrong. What he is doing is common in Jewish writings. It's called fusing prophecy, where one prophecy is quoted and then another is quoted in support of it. In Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, the prophet speaks of a polluted field of blood by the religious leaders, which becomes Gehenna. And then Matthew follows that reference with the Zechariah 11:13 quote, which is precisely what happened down to the details, even to the price of the betrayal and the location of the potter's field. Both prophecies come true in one event. Then as Jesus is standing before his tormentors, he is silent to their accusations, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. When the criminal Barabbas is chosen instead of Jesus, the words of Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This too came to fruition. In the Old Testament, A coming darkness symbolized judgment. In Matthew 27, verse 45, judgment was coming upon Jesus. Listen to this prophecy in Amos 8. It helps us to remember that all of this is occurring during the Passover feast. Keep that in mind. This is Amos 8, verses 9 through 10. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Even the darkness here symbolized the wrath that fell upon Jesus. When Jesus is ridiculed on the cross, Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18 that we read earlier, it comes to life. I'll read that again. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, for, and for my clothing they cast lots. Don't you see Matthew's entire narrative is pointing to Jesus as the suffering servant, the Son of God, the King of kings. And neither the religious leaders nor the entire Roman Empire can stop him. Jesus will suffer, but with a purpose in order to save his people from their sins. And if all these other prophecies came true, then so did the others. Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, He shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
And then the curtain torn in two is proof. The dead coming to life proved the price was paid. And with the Gentiles' recognition of the Son, so too Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. That's in your worship, God. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. What a tragedy at the cross, but oh, what victory. Jesus is the unique Son of God. All of humanity deserted him. He went to the cross by himself. He stood by himself. All we like sheep went astray, but not him. He did what we could not do. He obtained salvation for every believer in every place in every time. He alone did it. This is Jesus whom Matthew said at the outset of his gospel, he will save his people from their sins. We haven't even gotten to the best part yet. This demonstration of God's power over earthly authorities is going to have relevance for after the resurrection. But we'll need to save that for next week. I hope I've taken you from the valley of the canyon to the very ridge where you can see the vista of the entire scene. One magnificent picture woven of beautiful intricacies of the Son of God obtaining our salvation. But I wish I could take you to a higher view. One of my favorite photographs is titled Earthrise. It was taken from Apollo 8 as it circumvented the moon. Instead of seeing the moon rise, the astronauts saw the Earth come over the horizon of the moon. It was beautifully breathtaking and can make you feel so small as well. Much like this scene in Matthew's gospel, the cross is the greatest event in all the universe, and we are still feeling its effects. God is not done weaving his own tapestry of history. God is still refining his people and calling others into his glorious kingdom. And from his vantage point, he is doing awesome deeds despite the sin in the world. Maybe you have suffered greatly as you continue in your faith in Christ. Do not despair. Your suffering is meaningful in the eyes of God. It has a purpose. Others are, are looking, and they're looking for hope, and they're watching to see if your hope holds. Your constant reliance upon Christ day after day is a demonstration of God's enduring power within you. And then there are lost people watching events unfold around them. They're asking, well, who reigns? Who is in control? Is it political parties? Is it culture? Why would God allow such evil and distortion into the world? And yet... Here we see how God used mankind's sin nature to bring about his purposes. The last book of the Bible shows us that God is sovereign and justice will prevail. The cross and the resurrection proves it as the first fruits. And perhaps you can look back on how God intervened in your own life to bring you salvation. Maybe for you in that moment, it just seemed like all hope was lost, but but now, from this perspective, 
you can see how he brought you to the precise point you needed in order to see and welcome the salvation that Jesus purchased for you. And maybe that point is today. I pray that the Holy Spirit has removed the veil that's been covering your eyes and that you're able to look at what we just looked at, that despite everything that was coming against Jesus, he succeeded in his mission. He did it. He paid the sin debt in full, and the Father accepted it in full on our behalf. I pray that today is the day that you will see that and experience it. Let's pray. Lord, when, when we just see the beauty of what has transpired in Matthew's gospel, I pray that we would stand in awe, that it would cause us to stagger, to just to be stunned by the revelation of what Jesus obtained on our behalf. That though all of this came against him to try to stop him, he would succeed in his mission. It was foretold of long ago that this would be how you would reconcile sinful humanity to you. And the beauty of it is that it is available to all who believe in this moment who believe that Christ paid the sin debt for them. Oh, Lord, the simplicity of it causes us to stand in awe. Not the ease with which Jesus went through, because he obviously suffered the weight of sin upon his soul in that single moment. But yet the simplicity that even a child could understand this that I am a sinner that needs to be reconciled to a holy God and that the way out, the way to find the ability to be pleasing to you is just to believe in what the Son has done on our behalf. How beautiful, how simple. So, Lord, as we think of all the awesome things that you have created and that you have done, we pray that you would magnify the cross of Christ even more to us right now, that in the midst of that, Lord, we would be in awe and we would bend the knee and we would praise you all the more for what you alone have done. We pray this because of the finished work of Jesus. Amen.